Okay, let's turn back to Job chapter 1. And uh, I really need to finish this lesson, okay? So, <laughs> dragging this out. I think, Jack and Susie, was I just starting this when you left? I haven't gotten very far, you can tell. So, um, you didn't miss much. It's been an interesting uh, six weeks. Uh, but what we want to do this morning is just finish off the section in your notes there on, uh, it's our mini-series on Satan, on the adversary. Remember Job, the book of Job just introduces us to this this character in Scripture called the adversary. He, he's not, um, we don't know hardly anything else about him other than that he is identified as the adversary of God. And um, so as we've unfolded uh, Job chapter 1, we've learned a little bit about him, but uh, what I've wanted to do in these, supposed to be just a week or two, but <laughs> six weeks or whatever it's been, um, is just unfold for you um, some of the major texts and things that we know about Satan in the whole of Scripture. And uh, where we're at in this place right now is talking about what Satan does. Uh, we said last time, which was, I don't know, I'm not even going to guess, whenever last time was, uh, that Satan is most likely an angel who was created to minister uh, around God's very throne. Uh, he turned from that. He rejected his role. He desired uh, the very office and position of God himself. And as a result of that, uh, God judged him, sending him out of heaven. And, that, and in the process, about one-third of the angels went with him, according to Revelation chapter 20. And uh, so Satan, as we know it, is uh, he is a real created being. He is the adversary of God. He has thousands upon thousands of sinful angels, uh, demonic angels, whatever you want to call demons, bad angels, probably all the same thing. Um, and his goal, as we're going to see here, um, is to oppose God in lots of different ways. And uh, But that's who he is. And I think it's important to do this because, uh, as I've said before, uh, we, we tend to fall into two ditches on either side of the road in this subject. Uh, the one ditch is we tend to ignore Satan and not take him seriously and not heed the admonitions of Scripture that say this guy is real, he's powerful, he's very smart, he's very wise, and he's out to um, deter Christians from honoring God in every way known to man. Uh, so that's one ditch we want to avoid where we just, we just ignore him. But the other ditch we want to avoid is making too much of Satan. Uh, he's not God's arch enemy in terms of being the equal power. Uh, it's not the good God, bad God who duke it out cosmically in heaven. Uh, we don't want to see Satan uh, behind every problem in life, behind every, any trial, every sickness, every act of disobedience. Um, so we want to have a, a biblical balance in this. Uh, by way of review, we said that the first thing that Satan does is he aggressively opposes God. That's very broad, but we can flesh that out with some specifics here. Uh, he led that revolt in heaven that we mentioned just a minute ago. He slanders God's word. Do you remember that in Genesis 3? Did God really say? And he, he begins corrupting God's very words and God's very instructions. Uh, he is known as the tempter of Christ in Matthew chapter 4. Remember he came after Jesus had been fasting and uh, came to uh, tempt Christ and to try to encourage him to bow down to, to Satan himself. 2 Corinthians 11, a very interesting passage. He's described... Uh, as an angel of light. Remember that we talked about last time? How many false religions have come into the world because of angelic messages? We talked about um, 
Islam. We talked about Mormonism. Uh, and most other religions are going to have some sort of angelic uh, principle to it. Um, but uh, when, you know, when we think of Satan showing up in, in the world, we're, we're not supposed to think of like the worst possible thing we could ever think of. What we should think of is something very attractive, something very beautiful, something that's mostly right with a little bit of error. And, and that's how he uh, does that. If we have a little time, I'm going sh- to unpack that for you a little bit when we're done here. Um, he also energizes the Antichrist when uh, uh, that time in history comes. He deceives and attacks Israel, and he introduced sin into the world. I remember John said the devil has sinned from the beginning. Um, he was the one who, who brought sin into the world, introduced it to Adam and Eve. And then the second thing we saw, I'm sorry, he introduces pride to the, really the heart uh, behind all of what he does. The second thing we saw last time, I think this is where we left off, is that he opposes the truth. He blinds men's eyes so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, the scripture says. Uh, He snatches away the seed of the word. Remember the parable of the sower and the soils. Uh, He is the one in that first soil that the birds come and snatch it away. You remember that? And then as Jesus interprets it, he says that's when the evil one comes, snatches the word so it cannot... It cannot bear fruit in the life of that person. Um, he's in the business of, of stealing God's... And can I just... Um, don't, don't equate this to, to Satan's work necessarily. I, so I suppose it could be. Um, it, was, it was embarrassingly hard for me to sit at the bed of my dying grandfather and talk to him about the gospel. I teach people God's word every week, uh, both in this setting and, and in a one-on-one counseling setting. Um, and and I, maybe you have this experience. You sit down and you go, why is this so hard? And it's embarrassing. It's shameful even that I can't open my mouth to tell my own grandfather about Christ. And, you know, I mean, that, that, that's my own flesh, definitely, probably mostly. Um, but there is something about the power of the Word of God, and there is something about what goes on spiritually behind the curtain that we can't see. Um, and by God's grace, my mouth opened, but it was only by God's grace. It was hard. And there is something about what Satan does, what the spiritual forces of darkness do in our sinful flesh. Romans 8 says our flesh is at enmity with God. Our flesh hates God and hates his word. And it's a battle. I was talking to some young people this last week just about getting into the Bible every day, right? That's what, that's what we do. We, we need that. And, and, you know, you sit down to do it, and 18 things you have to do that day come to mind, don't they? People call that never call. You know, it, it's how it works. He opposes the truth. He introduces deceitful doctrines, uh, according to 1 Timothy 4. Uh, he opposes righteousness, according to Acts 13. He sows tares amongst the wheat, and... And um, here we are as believers. Believers gather together in churches and in gatherings, and there's always, always tares, Jesus says, amongst the wheat. 
Okay, so let's pick it up here. I th- is that where we left off? Is that, is that where you left off in your notes there? Number three, he aggressively opposes believers. Let's move one more level to how this works. He tempts them to sin. There are a number of different places in Scripture that uh, spell out how Satan is involved in tempting believers to sin. Acts chapter 5 is one such instance. Actually, don't go there. Go to Ephesians 4 for a minute. It's not on your notes, but I want to show you this one because it's so, so interesting. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. It says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. His point is, when you get angry with somebody, when you have a conflict with somebody, you need to deal with that before your head rests on the pillow that night. Okay? Do not let the sun go down in your anger. You deal with it right away. You go to that person. You seek to reconcile. You, you seek forgiveness. You grant forgiveness. That's what he's saying. Okay? We think, okay, well, that's, that's pretty good. We should do that. But, you know, it's, sometimes it gets late. Sometimes it's inconvenient. And sometimes people are tired. And um, what happens when we don't do that? Here's what happens. There's a knock on the door. Let's say this is you and your spouse, right? You, you've had this conflict. You decide to not go to bed uh, you said, you know, well, we'll deal with it. We'll deal with it later. We're not going to resolve it tonight. We're tired or whatever. Knock on the door. You go to answer the door. You open the door. It's Satan. And he says, hi, my name's Satan. I would like to come into your home, into your marriage and, and be a part of it. Can I come in please? Okay. And anyone with half a brain, even if they were tired would say absolutely positively not. Of course not. I don't want you anywhere near my marriage. I don't want you anywhere near my relationships, right? That's exactly what we would do. But when we don't solve and reconcile conflict and anger right away, that's exactly what happens. Look at the next verse. And do not give the devil an opportunity. What he's saying is when we don't deal with anger, when we don't deal with conflict, we don't reconcile sin right away, we are opening the door for Satan into that relationship. Now, is that not sobering? Because it's real easy to just say, ah, we'll just let this one go, right? We'll just, we'll deal with it in the morning. Well, and you know what? What happens in the soul of a person, according to this verse, is it saying you're, you're opening the door, you're giving Satan an opportunity. And several places in the New Testament, um, we, we come to learn how Satan works. Um, another place, I think it's in Romans uh, 13, uh, it says, uh, uh, do not give the devil um, a foothold. Uh, in your life in that. So that's one way he does that. He tempts uh, believers to sin. Uh, Number two, uh, he tries to defeat them. Uh, You start reading some of this language. Uh, Look at this. Look back at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to skip through some of these. We'll stop and and look at them in more uh, detail on some. Um, uh, lots of context here in Second Corinthians. This is his, um, his letter where he's writing to the Corinthians to really affirm his apostleship. Uh, but remember, there's these false teachers who are accusing Paul, um, making up stories about his character. And uh, he's talking about the affliction and sorrow that he has faced in the midst of all this. Okay, verse 4 uh, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, so that 
not so that you would be made sorrowful, but so that you might know the love which I have especially for you. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree in order not to say too much to all of you. Sufficient for such a one uh, is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort uh, him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So what he's saying is, you know, something has happened in the church, it's affected everybody. Paul has pointed it out, and he's saying, now you need to forgive and comfort that repentant brother um, rather than let it continue on uh, to come into a big deal in the church. And in the midst of that, he, he gets to the end of this uh, paragraph here, uh, and he says in verse 10, but, who, but one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Why? Verse 11, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. What happens when believers don't forgive one another? Okay, There's an advantage given to Satan. He's out to destroy. Do you know why churches split? Do you know why two professing believers don't talk to each other anymore? That's what happens. And think of... Think of how the gospel is demeaned when two Christians don't forgive each other. That shows that Christ and His gospel don't work. Or, or worse, it's just a religion. It's just something we say. It's not something that we actually live. It's not something that actually works in life. And it demeans the name of God. It demeans His gospel. That's, that's what He's trying to do. How many people know professing Christians today who do not worship in a church because of a reconciliation issue, right? I am not even going to go to corporate worship because I have been hurt so badly by this person. Or they didn't forgive me or they didn't, right? You guys all know people like that. That's, a, that's the work of Satan. Do you see that? That's exactly what he's trying to do. To say, look, we can't even get a 100 people to get along in Christ let alone for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth to, to supposedly reconcile us to our Creator. That's what he's doing. He hinders uh, the work, their work for God. He accuses them falsely. We saw that in Job, didn't we? Um, he comes uh, falsely accusing Job. Well, God, the only reason he worships you is because you've made his life so wonderful, right? And if, you're, if you didn't make his life so wonderful, he wouldn't worship you at all. In fact, he curse you. And so he accuses uh, people, we see in Revelation 12, Satan comes to, uh, if possible, accuse the brethren in the end times. And he instigates persecution against them. Revelation 2.10 talks about um, uh, Satan putting uh, these people into prison in order to test them. Some persecution that happens, very probably very similar to Job. Uh, a great season of testing in their life. And yet... And yet, even though that's true, let's remind ourselves of some things. Satan can be resisted. Flip over to uh, James chapter 4. It's not on the PowerPoint there. It's in your notes. What's that reference there? 4-7. 
Yeah, this is in a context that's really talking about repentance. And, and ironically, it's in the context of conflict again, isn't it? Isn't this interesting? You notice this? Interpersonal conflict, reconciliation, forgiveness, bitterness with people, satanic schemes. Do you see the connection? Verse 6, he gives greater grace. Therefore, God sa- it says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We'll talk what it means to resist the devil, but most of the books that you've seen on resisting the devil is not biblical Satan resistance. Okay? But he can be resisted. As powerful as he is, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Right? Secondly, we know that Christ is greater. Right? First John... 4, 4, the verse we just uh, quoted there. Believers are overcomers. Romans chapter 8, right? Romans 8, we are more than conquerors. Now, you guys know that verse. We won't turn there. Believers are more than conquerors. They, they are overcomers. They're, there's nothing, that verse says, that can separate us from what? The love of God in Christ. And Christ came to destroy His works. We're going to talk about this in a minute, but go ahead and turn over to 1 John uh, John really had as a theme in his first letter, in 1 John, um, he talks about Satan a lot. And it's definitely, um, it's definitely the most instances of Satan uh, in, in, you know, per chapter. I mean, there are other books that talk about him more, but they're bigger books. Uh, 1 John chapter 3, uh, verse 8, why did, why did Christ come in part? Um, he says, "...the one who practices sin is of the devil." For the devil has sinned from the beginning, but the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came. Um, part of, follow the progression here, okay? I, I've had some really, really, really interesting talks with my kids this week. Um, I discovered this week that my kids don't know what a cemetery is. So we stopped in Acton yesterday. Um, you know, we're trying to explain, you know, grandpa dies, great-grandpa dies. You know, what does that mean? And, and you know, people are made up of two parts, right? A, a spirit and a body. And when we die, uh, the body is typically put in a box and put in the ground, and it deteriorates. And the spirit goes to be either with the Lord if they're a believer or to judgment if they're not. And uh, there's that separation. And, um, you know, it's interesting... Um, It's interesting because uh, when, when you're explaining all this, you think, well, well why, uh, why do people die? And you remember death was a consequence of what? Of sin. And where did sin start? What's that? In the garden. In the garden because of whose influence? Because of Satan's influence. So you see the progression? So Satan introduces sin into the world. Adam and Eve go for it. The penalty of that is death, and that's why Romans 5 says that death reigns now. Okay? So now, now follow this. If we're going to reverse that, if we're going to undo that, Jesus goes, he lives a perfect life, he dies on the cross, which pays a penalty for sin. That's atonement, pays the penalty for that. But then what does he do on the third day? He rises again, the scripture says, showing that he has defeated what? What is the last enemy, according to 1 Corinthians 15, that will be defeated? It's death. Okay, why does he have to defeat death? Say it, put it together. Yeah, it's the consequence of sin. 
So him rising from the dead is Jesus saying, I have conquered this, right? I have conquered sin, that's atonement. I've conquered death, that's the resurrection. And all those point back to whose work? Satan's work. So when death is defeated, when sin is defeated through the resurrection, that was a way of showing the world that Satan is defeated now. Do you see that? Okay. Um, almost lost where I was going there, but, but, but that's the point. That's what John is saying, that, that Christ appeared to destroy the works of the devil, and he did that through the resurrection. Christ came to destroy his works, and believers are ultimately protected. You're in chapter 3, uh, flip over to chapter 5, verse 18. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Okay, As powerful as Satan is, at the end of the day, he is powerless over the believer. You say, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. We just talked about all this stuff that he does. That's true, but what have we learned in Job? He has Absolutely, 100%, no power unless what? Unless God grants it. Okay. So whatever is going on and to whatever extent Satan is involved in things in my life, I know that they are being, they're passing through my Father's hands first. And, and as we've seen in Job, God has a good purpose in that. So Romans 8.28, he's using all things for my good. So even though all those things are true about what he does, he can be resisted, Christ is greater, believers are overcomers, Christ came to destroy his works, and believers are ultimately protected. Now, lest we think that, that, um, that this is sort of a random thing that Satan engage, engages in, Scripture reveals that Satan has an agenda. Um, he has a very specific agenda, and he's really good at following through with his agenda. I don't know about you, I'm really good about making plans. It's hard for me to follow through with them sometimes, okay? And that's, that's kind of me, so I'm always working on following through with stuff. Um, Satan's not like that. He's really good at making plans, and he's really good at following them. Look at 2 Corinthians uh, 2. We, we saw that, actually, we just looked at that. Uh, we are not ignorant of his schemes, Okay, what does scheme mean? Someone is scheming. What, what, what does that mean? What's that? Planning evil. Tricks. Okay. They're, they have screw tape letters, yeah. You guys read screw tape, uh, C.S. Lewis? Yeah, there's an agenda. There's a curriculum. There's a plan. There's a schematic that he's following. And, and as, the, as the term scheme typically implies, it's not good. <laughs> It is evil. In Ephesians 6.11, which we haven't looked at, let's go ahead and turn back there for a minute. Ephesians 6.11, that's in the chapter. Actually, Terry's going to start on chapter 6 um, soon. Soon. I know it's not next week, and I know it's not the week after that. But soon. Um, that section in, in chapter uh, 6, verse 10 and following on the armor of God, right? And, and uh, you know, take up the armor of God so that uh, you will be able to stand firm against the 
schemes or plans of the devil, okay? His methods, his schemes, his works. Um, And by the way, that's a command. If we don't do what Jesus tells us to do in his word, we will fall prey to Satan's schemes. That's what he's saying. If you don't do this, if I don't do this, then I am putting myself in a place where I may fall into one of the schemes here. Okay? And, and we, need to be, we need to be very conscious of that, but very aware of that. Yet Satan is, is limited, defeated, and judged. Let's just throw some stuff up here. His activities are restricted by God. He is ultimately accountable to God. Again, we saw that in Job. He attack, his attacks can be resisted by believers. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Ephesians 6, 10 to 18, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist the devil. Uh, you remember his presence and activities will be banished during the millennium. What happens in the millennial kingdom? He's bound and chained and locked up. Uh, there is a system of theology today that says Satan is bound right now. Did you know that? Um, and you know what? Um, pragmatism and experience is never the ultimate criteria for theology being true. But it sure doesn't look like Satan's bound right now. Uh, he will be banished and bound during the millennial kingdom. And he is ultimately sentenced to the lake of fire, a place prepared for him and his angels. Um, I just had a conversation with a, with a kid not too long ago. I think it was someone in Awana. And, and they were asking very honestly, why would God make hell to send people to? Um, look at Revelation chapter 20. Because Revelation chapter 20 shows us that that assumption, the assumption of of most people when they think about hell, uh, is not true. Uh, Revelation chapter 20 talks about uh, Satan being bound. We see that in the first six verses there. He's bound during the millennial kingdom a thousand years. Verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, Satan is released from prison. Uh, He comes out and participates in that final battle. And then verse 10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beasts and the false prophets are today, and they will be tormented day and night forever. Okay, he's thrown into the lake of fire. But Scripture tells us, uh, Jesus actually tells us in Matthew chapter 25, that uh, hell was prepared for the devil and his angels, right? Not people. Uh, It was always designed from the beginning to be a place of judgment for the devil and his angels. Uh, And it's only through rejecting the gospel that people end up there. And then finally, his defeat is specifically connected to the work of Christ. Um, I could have put a ton of verses up there, but it's amazing as you're just reading Scripture about the cross, you're reading about what Christ did. And we typically think forgiveness of sin, atonement, and all that, and that's true. But all along the way, the Scripture says, this is going to defeat Satan too. This is going to defeat the devil. And that's important because, again, remember, death and sin and the devil are all connected in Scripture. And so there has to be a progression of defeat in order to totally put this thing back 
the way it was, it was supposed to be, to totally be restored to God. And even, even the new heavens and the new earth. Um, think about this. If there's a devil running around, is that new heavens and new earth going to last very long? No. It didn't the first time. Uh, so Satan's defeat is essential to the gospel and to salvation. Now, um, I want to show you in the last seven minutes that we have how he works. Okay, this is the, the jet tour, but I think it's very, very important that we remember how he works. Please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, this is not in your notes. Um, I've, I've taught this before, so if you're going, Keith, I've heard this before. Great, consider it review. But 2 Corinthians 10, um, we need to get a handle on the, the basic strategy of Satan. Okay, so I just want to wave our hand, wave my hands at this and, and get you thinking um, how this works. Okay? Um, look at Second uh, Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. What's he saying? He's saying we live in the flesh, we've got this body, you know, we're, we're people. But we don't do spiritual battle in fleshly ways. We don't do it consistent with the ways of the world. That's not how we do battle. Okay? Verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. For we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, look back at the text there and notice these words, okay? Weapons, warfare, fortresses, lofty thing. Um, where's the other one? Captive, taking captive, okay? You know what those are? I call those the G.I. Joe words of the Bible. Those are military terms. They're, they're battle terms, soldier terms. And if you go through here, this text is saturated with battle-type terminology. Okay, so, so what is he talking about? Obviously, he's not talking about going and, and fighting in a, in a real war. What war is he talking about here? What battle is he referring to? It's spiritual warfare. Okay, now, now I don't know about you, but when I hear spiritual warfare, I brace myself. <laughs> because what's going to follow typically is some big weird, strange, unbiblical scheme of all the things we're supposed to be doing to combat Satan and his forces. It involves all sorts of rituals, all sorts of chants and prayers and walking in circles around things. And Maybe you've been exposed to some of these things also. I'd like you to see that according to Scripture, none of that stuff has any relevance to how we do spiritual battle. Okay, I want you to see that this morning clearly. Look back at the text there. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Okay, and that would be like a spiritual stronghold, uh, some powerful spiritual reality that Satan's working in the world. Well, how do we engage? How do we fight? Verse 5, we destroy speculations. Speculations. Where have I heard that word before? Romans chapter 1 says that when people reject God, they turn from the Creator, right, to worship the 
creature, right? That's what we all do, right? We're made to worship God, but sin makes us worship something else. We exchange, as Romans 1 says, the truth of God for a lie. When we do that, something happens in the human heart. And Romans 1 says this, they become futile in their speculations. Do you remember that? We come up with all sorts of ideas, theories, theologies, philosophies about what life is about, about what religion is about, what's, what's important in life, what, what's worthy of doing in life and what's right and what's wrong. And we, we come up with this whole idea about how we think things should run in our own life or maybe in the lives of other people. Now, come back to 2 Corinthians 10. What are we supposed to do with those systems of thinking, those systems of philosophy, those false ideologies? What are we supposed to do with them? Well, first we destroy them, right? Why do we destroy them? Look at the parallel term in verse 5. Destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against who? Do you see, follow me here, when I reject the message of Scripture, when I reject the God of Scripture, what I erect in my own heart and what I think in my own head is satanic because it is directly, as this text says, opposed to God himself. Okay? It may be, it may be a child hearing that there's no creator. That he's just a product of random chance. It may be a person considering a divorce and they say, God would want me to be happy, right? It may be a young man wrestling with pornography saying, God will forgive me. It may be It may be me saying in my head, what are my grandparents going to think of me if I open the Word of God with them and I never have done that before? What if they're offended? What if they're angry? What if it ruins the relationship? Do you see? Any, anything that ends up in here that's not biblical is satanic. That's how he works. This is his world. This is his playground. And he works not through all these crazy ways that we read about in books. He works through the philosophies and ideologies of the world. And what this is saying is those get raised up against God. Notice the term there, lofty thing, prideful thing. Why is it prideful? Because it comes out of rejecting the Creator and picking up the creation, exchanging the truth of God for a lie. That's why. It's the heart of pride. And pride goes back to who? Satan himself. Do do you see that? Is there a hand? Yeah, Rich. Uh, You just finished reading the book called In the Mind of Man. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Boy, very detailed uh, book about evolution Hmm. and and how everything that you're mentioning is, it's like one of Satan's latest Yep. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. 
And you, know, you guys see that in Cambodia with Buddhism, a false system that opposes God and raises that up. Gary? They do. And we cannot always just bulldoze the house hmm. because we can't bring some people in. Hmm. That's good. So there's I think in a personal relationship we have to dismantle that. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's Francis Schaefer. And, you know, it's interesting, and that's totally true. The emphasis here is on me, first and foremost, the, the things that catch me up. And that's why he says we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That, that, that's how you do this. That, that, that's how you avoid falling into the schemes of Satan. You take everything you hear, and, and the word in Greek is you interrogate it against Scripture. Remember, it's a G.I. Joe term, right? You're interrogating the enemy. You're, you're, you're doing things in order to gain the truth. Does this thing stand up to the test of Scripture? And, and at the end of the day, Satan gets a foothold whenever we embrace something and act on what is not true, what is not biblical. That's how he's working. Um, now again, we, we could spend an hour talking about that, but but let's let's just let's just conclude our little mini series on Satan, remembering this: <laughs> what we believe is always the issue in spiritual battle. And if we want to avoid falling into these schemes, we need to have a very very regular process that happens in our hearts whenever we hear things that we're taking it captive to the obedience of Christ. Um, and what happens if it doesn't line up? That we are quick to reject it and to turn back to God and to His Word. Okay? Uh, well, Lord willing, next week we'll be back in... Um, we'll pick back up in Job. And um, let's, let's go to the Lord and, and conclude our time in prayer. Um, Father, thank You.